So with that, where we pick up at is 2.11 and following. Notice what you hear in verse 11. And this is a phrase that occurs only in the pastorals. And of course, the pastorals are what? First, second Timothy and Titus. Uh, this is a phrase that only occurs there. Uh, Paul or Paul's secretary has picked this phrase up somewhere. He says, in my translation, the saying is trustworthy. Um, that's, that's a phrase that he uses to um, do two things. He's going to tell you the way he's getting ready to say is important. I'm sure he'd tell you everything he says is important. But somehow this is a little more important. But he also uses it, as you'll see, to introduce um, <clears throat> something that he is borrowing from somewhere else. Paul did the same thing we all do. Um, you know, if you have original thoughts too often in your preaching, that may be heresy. So be, be, be careful with your original thoughts. Uh, most of us are just passing on what we have received. Um, you know, we don't create the faith uh, as we go. We don't invent new stuff for the faith as we go. So Paul does exactly what we do. He's using stuff that's there before him. So what you have before you here is either, well, it's definitely a hymn. It may just be a standard hymn, or it may very well be um, a baptismal hymn. It may be a baptismal hymn or a creed that is used of, at, at baptism. <clears throat> and I'll show you why in the text. So look, look at it. It's introduced in verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, or the saying is sure, the saying is something. You need to listen to this, Paul's saying. The saying is trustworthy for, and uh, hopefully your translation shows you this in almost poetic form, so you, you can see the hymn here. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Um, you remember Paul in Romans says, baptism is an identification with the burial of Christ. So it makes perfect sense. He's using a hymn here that starts out saying that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. You're going to see, in just a few moments, he's going to start addressing a heresy. Heresy is a fa false teaching. Heresy comes from a Greek word. It just means to choose. But a heresy is a false teaching that you have chosen. And you have the right to do that. And Paul has the right to tell you it's a false teaching. You can choose whatever you want to believe. But uh, the early Christian community had no problem saying some of the things that some people were choosing was a heresy, a false teaching. Uh, he's going to deal with a particular heresy in a moment uh, that has to do with, with baptism. So um, he's, um, or resurrection. Uh, but that's why he's using a hymn here that starts off sounding a little bit like Easter. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. The hymn's also pointing out our union, our unity with Christ. Again, baptism is a symbol, a sign of our identification with Christ. We have died to this life. We've come alive in Christ. We're living in unity with Christ. So you, you hear the reference on unity there. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. 
And there's lots of places where we're promised in the New Testament that part of the eternal kingdom is, is a reigning with Christ. So if we endure, if we keep on keeping on, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Denying Christ is um, serious, very serious. So you see that it has a serious consequence. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But there's a step before denying Christ. We all know this. There's a step before denying Christ, um, which is referenced in the next line of the hymn. If we are faithless. Yeah, being faithless is on the route, on the way to deny, denying Christ. Um, <clears throat> faithlessness, we can survive. Breaks the heart of God, but faithlessness, we can survive. Denying Christ, we cannot. So notice what he says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, which is not as bad as denying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So yeah, we can survive faithlessness. Um, <clears throat> I don't encourage it. Paul's not encouraging it. But we can get over faithlessness. Um, we cannot get over denying Christ. So um, this is a hymn, maybe a creed, but a hymn probably, that the early Christian community was singing. Um, you notice... You notice, like all Christian hymns, they should be Christ-centered, not you-centered. Now, we write some stuff that's you-centered and me-centered, where we're talking about us. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I'm sharing my testimony with you. And those are fine, but we need to make sure that most of what we write, most of what we use, is focused on him. So you see this hymn here <clears throat> that is very much... Um, focused on, on Christ. Um, but notice, Paul, Paul always, as most preachers, he always editorializes. So notice how he ends the hymn. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then Paul editorializes, for he cannot deny himself. The nature of God never changes. God is not fickle. God's not schizophrenic. God didn't say something a thousand years ago. And, you know, that we have to wonder about whether or not he still desires it of us. God cannot desire, deny himself. The character of God is what determines what God does. And the character of God does not change. And that's why we really need to know the character of God, the attributes of God, who God is. If you know who God is, you'll figure out what God wants. But you've got to have a firm foundation on knowing who God is. I mentioned a book um, somewhere recently, because uh, I've had several people ask me, it's A.W. Tozer's classic, The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, that book is a small book. Um, it's not as quite as popular as A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. That's highly devotional, highly motivational. Um, that's his greatest classic. But the, the knowledge of the holy is a great, not a long read, a great read on the character of God, 
each chapter on an attribute of God. He wrote it back in the 1940s. Um, <clears throat> could be the early 50s. He wrote it back in that period because, um, like, like we've usually dealt with, and it's gotten worse in the modern era, people don't know the character of God. They don't know who God is. They don't know the attributes of God. Sometimes we fear that is because they want the gifts more than they want the giver. Make sure you know about the giver before you start being concerned about the gifts that the giver gives. Yes, yeah, sometimes we're so focused on what God can do for us, what God is doing for us, and that's wonderful that we don't pay attention to who God is. Our focus needs to always be on the giver, secondarily on the gifts. If not, we turn our faith into a, a sort of a consumer thing. You know, we, we're, we're consumers of what God does for us. <clears throat> but anyway, um, yeah, you need to know the character of God because God cannot deny himself. The character of God never changes. And that's how you can figure out God's will uh, to the best that we can. That's how you can know what God wants to the best we can because we know who God is. Um, that the Bible is given from Genesis to Revelation, first and foremost, to introduce us to who he is. And then we go from there. So look at verse 14. After he's um, worshipped with you a little bit. He's going to say to, um, he's saying to Timothy, but notice he says, remind them. So he sort of turns his focus a little away from just Timothy to telling Timothy what Timothy needs to be saying to his people. Remind them of these things. Again, preaching should never be anything but reminding the Christian community of the faith. When we're ordained in the historic church, Part of our vows or part of our charge is to go and preach the faith of the church and none other. I can't make it up week to week. I can't find a new idea that I need to share with you. Now, I can share the old ideas in new ways. But, yeah, preaching is just reminding, proclaiming, or as Paul says, passing on what I have received. So, yeah, if you're sitting under preaching and they seem to be making, up, making it up as they go, you need to have some serious questions about that. Serious questions about that. Anyway, so Paul says to Timothy about his people, remind them of these things and charge them before God. And this is where he's going to start getting into the false teachers, the heretics that, that, that evidently has infiltrated the church in Ephesus. And Timothy's having to deal with them. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Now, we know Paul. <clears throat> Paul's a really good friend of mine. I hope he's a good friend of yours. You know his writings well. And one thing you'll know about Paul, he never hesitated to quarrel. Uh, for instance, in uh, Galatians chapter 2, he said, I confronted Peter Cephas face to face. He tells you about a quarrel he had with uh, Peter in uh, Galatians 2. He, Paul was not one to, to shy away from a quarrel or a confrontation. But Paul was clear. He would quarrel or confront 
or become contentious over the gospel, over what Christ has done, over what we are to proclaim. He, he, he didn't bother himself with quarrels over any lesser issues. So, you know, we Christians could learn a lot from that. There is a time to quarrel. There's a time to not worry about it. You know, <clears throat> I don't care how you take communion. I really don't. I don't care if you, um, how really how often you take it. I've got opinions. I don't care how much water you use in baptism. You know, the church a long time ago said it only takes three drops for it to be a valid baptism. I don't care. You know, I would like for you to use some amount of water, even three drops. But otherwise, I don't care how much or how little water. You know, those are the sort of things we need to be careful about becoming contentious. Um, but we need to be clear on what issues are worth going to the mat over. You know, particularly when I was a district superintendent, I used to tell a lot of clergy, <clears throat> you may never imagine this, but they would call their district superintendent to complain about you folks. And um, you were never doing some things right. And sometimes you weren't. But I always said basically the same thing. Is this something that you're willing to go to the mat over? Is this a hill you're willing to die on? Sometimes I would say, is this something Christ died for? Otherwise, patience and long-suffering is, is what you need to recommend. Uh, some people, you know, would rather fight than go to Disney World, and they'll quarrel about everything. That's not Paul. Paul knew when to quarrel and when not to. So don't hear him saying here, just sing kumbaya with everybody at all times. He's not saying that. Um, but he's going, he's, he's, he's going after the false teachers. So evidently the false teachers um, are quarreling about words, about semantics. And again, he's going to get to the illustration about resurrection. He's, he, they're, 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 they're using their quarrels to convince people that they don't know what they know. They're using their quarrels to lead them away from Christ. Uh, anyway, it says, so um, remind them, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, not just semantic arguments. Don't quarrel about words, uh, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Again, and this is what the modern church needs to hear. Heresy is dangerous. It's not just a unique way of thinking about things. Heresy is dangerous. Uh it doesn't happen as much now, but years ago, when I was serving on a board of ministry for the conference, one of our remedial books we used to give out a lot was a book by Bishop Fitzsimmons, <clears throat> an Episcopal bishop, retired now, maybe dead now, but retired now. He wrote a book um, where he pointed out some of the different heresies that have um, plagued the church for the last 2,000 years, false teachings. But the title of the book, and this is why the, this book was significant, was The Cruelty of Heresy. You know, we need to make clear that certain heresy, you know, what's heresy and what's not. Um, but it's not, just, it's not just a different way of thinking. Um, it, it can be cruel. It can ruin your hearers if you lead them down a heretical path. Uh, just for instance, 
Uh, one of the basic heresies that we confronted early on that the scriptures are obvious about that we still have to confront on a regular basis is what got termed early on the heresy of Arianism. Now, it was called the heresy of Arianism because its biggest proponent was a guy named Arius. But Arius has been dead now for... <clears throat> what year is this? 2020. He's been dead for 1,700 years. But Arianism's alive and well. Arius taught, and he said a lot of wonderful things about Jesus. He loved Jesus. He preached about Jesus. He talked in ad nauseum about Jesus. But he did not believe Jesus was equal with the Father. You know, you had the Father, Jesus, and Arius didn't quite know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. But they were not co-equal. They were not co-eternal. And that's why we have creeds like the Nicene Creed, because we, we fought through this, we argued through this, and we said Arianism is not acceptable. If you allow Jesus to be anything less than God, if you, if you kind of rank the Trinity in importance, yeah, you and Arius, well, the church was clear, you and Arius will go to hell together. Your, the hearers will be ruined. There's a cru cruelty in heresy. That's why there's things to quarrel about. <clears throat> there's things to not quarrel about. So, um, you know, Paul's going after a group here who are good at quarreling. They're good at quarreling about words, but they have the danger, what he's telling Timothy, they have the danger they may ruin their hearers. So look what he says to Timothy now. This is where he becomes more positive. This is a great text right here. Do your best, Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of truth is the revelation of God. Basically, for our purposes, this is the word of truth. And he's saying to Timothy, make sure that you show yourself approved. You do it right. Approved by God, honored by God, favored by God, determined by God to be a worker approved by God. Rightly handling this, the word of truth. Now, that doesn't mean... <clears throat> Rightly handling your 10 favorite text from this. Um, you need to handle the word of truth. Notice the phrase Paul used there, word of truth, because he's encompassing what we in the, in, the, in the church call the whole counsel of God. He's encompassing the whole counsel of God by calling it the word of truth. And he's telling Timothy to handle the whole counsel of God well. So, yeah, cogitate. We're in an age and an era we need to remind churches of this. Paul needs to be heard again. So that's why he's telling Timothy, because he's, he's saying, Timothy, you're confronting the heretics in your church. You're confronting the false teachers in your church. 
And he says the way you do that is handle this well. Now, again, for Timothy, the only thing he would have had would have been the Old Testament. Now, you know, the Spirit has led the church to add the Christian Testament. So our book is a little bigger than Timothy's book, but it's still the book. Um, for Timothy, it would have been the Hebrew Bible. But he's saying handle it well, appropriately, correctly, rightly. Um, <clears throat> Paul would not be able to accept. One of the ways I hear moderns just completely get rid of this is to say, well, everybody has their own interpretation. We don't really know what this says. We don't really know what this teaches. That's a, that's a problem on so many levels. But let me just say, if, if, that's, if that's your hermeneutic, hermeneutic's fancy seminary word for how you deal with this, if that's your hermeneutic, I'm glad that wasn't the church's hermeneutic, or we'd have never made it out of Jerusalem. I mean, Paul was clear. There, there was a word of truth. There was a gospel. There was something to be proclaimed. There was something called truth with a capital T. Um, so, yeah, when I hear somebody just want to stop all discussion on this by saying, well, everybody has their own opinion. Who know, Who in the world knows what this means? Well, again, I'd be out of work. You'd, we'd close the church down. You'd have no creeds in the life of the church. You'd have no articles of faith, such as for the Methodists in the room, you've got the Methodist articles of faith uh, that we've had for... Um, <clears throat> we've had since our beginning, but the Church of England has had since um, uh, the 1540s. And the only thing they did was they thought they, they, they were capturing what the church had said since the beginning. So, yeah, we'd have no articles of faith. We'd have no creeds. Um, preaching would be really up for grabs. You know, um, <clears throat> you know perhaps I would move away from preaching this to just becoming a... Um, <clears throat> I, um, Garrison Keeler in the pulpit, a storyteller in the pulpit. You know, which nothing wrong with stories. Jesus told parables. But I know I was sitting in a congregation one time as a district superintendent. It was one of my churches. I shouldn't even say that because you can you narrow it down to five counties. Um, it was in those five counties. Um, it was a prominent church in those five counties. And I'm sitting there listening to a preacher preach. My wife's with me. And she's lived with me now for 30, we were married in 1985, 32 years, 37 years. Gosh. Anyway, she's lived with me a long time. So um, I'm sitting there listening to this preacher. I look over. She's keeping count. You know, one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight. She made it up to 13. And I finally said, what are you doing? And she said, um, I'm counting the preacher's stories. But she knew it was making my brain explode. Jesus didn't even already make an appearance that day. Because 13 stories. In one sermon. Um, <clears throat> now the sad thing is, the sadder thing for me is there were people in that congregation who thought that was good preaching. You know, my brain would have ex was exploding because, you know, this stuff and the tradition of the church, the 
the Christian faith means a lot to me. So I don't want to hear something that I can hear on Prairie Home Companion. And I like Prairie Home Companion. But when I go to worship, and as a DS, I sit in a lot of pews. When I go to worship, I don't want to hear what Garrison Keeler could tell me. I don't really even want to hear what the newspaper can tell me. You know, I don't ignore that stuff. But that's not, I mean, when the preacher gets 22 minutes, that's what we were told to preach. When a preacher gets 22 minutes on Sunday morning, that preacher needs to be very selective. Very selective. What, what takes some of that time? Anyway, um, <clears throat> I'm telling you way too much about me here. But I think Paul would agree with me on this one. And when you see him do stuff like here where he's confronting heretics, you'll, you'll see him. Yeah, you see him. Anyway, so he's told Timothy what his charge is. You know, you, you need to be one um, approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. That person with 13 stories should be ashamed. Need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. <clears throat> now he's back on the heretics. Verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble. Have any of you ever tried to figure out Scientology? Have you ever tried to get L. Ron Hubbard's book, Dianetics, and read it? That is the poster child for irreverent babble. You know, it made the bestseller list back when it came out because all the Scientologists bought it up to make sure it made the bestseller list. Because I remember looking at it when it came out, trying to read it, because everybody's reading it. And, you know, um, I looked at it and tried to read it. And I think I'm of least average intelligence. I tried to read it, and I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion, irreverent babble. Some people couldn't understand it, and they said, ooh, this must be profound. You need to be careful. There, sometimes the line between profound and irreverent babble can be pretty thin. Anyway, Paul says, avoid irreverent babble. That's what the false teachers are doing. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Something else that Paul has given the church is that heresy can be cruel. Heresy is not just a different way of looking at things. Heresy always leads to ungodly living. There's never been a group of heretics in the church who didn't at some point display their heresy in their lifestyle. Um, that's throughout the, the scriptures. What you think determines what, how you live. So if you, if you put garbage in up here, guess what comes out? Yeah. So Paul is very clear that this irreverent Bible, this false teaching, these heresies, um, well, well, Lead people into ungodliness. And look at verse 17, and this is so true. And their talk was spread like gangrene. I'm not I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm going to resist the temptation of describing gangrene to you. But um it's not good stuff, but it spreads fast. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus. We don't know a lot about Hymenaeus. He's mentioned in 1 Timothy, and he's mentioned as someone who made shipwreck of his faith. So we know enough about Hymenaeus. Um, he says, among them are Hymenaeus 
and Philetus, we know nothing else about Philetus. This is the only place he's mentioned. But because what he's getting ready to say, we think we know what Hymenaeus and Philemon were teaching. Verse 18, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. There is something called truth. Who have swerved from the truth. And this is what they were saying. Saying that the resurrection has already happened. <clears throat> so let me say a word about that. What time are we? Let me say a word about that. When you look at the New Testament, that there is a sense in which the resurrection has already happened. More than one sense in which the resurrection has already happened. It happened with Jesus, Easter Sunday. But even beyond that, Paul, like in Ephesians and Romans, talks about that when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, when we were born again, when we embraced Christ and let Christ embrace us and Christ filled us with new life, that was a resurrection. That was a spiritual resurrection. We, we passed from death to life. Again, baptism is a symbol of going from death to life, dying with Christ to be raised with Christ. So there is a spiritual reality that we reference as resurrection in our lives. We know that. We should know that spiritual resurrection, that being birthed into new life, that being birthed anew, that being um, ushered into, uh, uh, as Paul says in Romans, into, the, into walking in newness of life. So we, we do have language about that spiritual resurrection that's coming to Christ. Now, is that the only resurrection that we talk about? Well, again, we've got our creeds. You know, we said early on, there is the resurrection of what at the end of history? The body. And the resurrection of the body is, just, is not just a metaphor or an image for ongoing spiritual existence. When redemption is finished, God is doing a great work. He's going to redeem spirit and matter and flesh. So in a sense, we have been, well, just like we have been redeemed, we'll be, we're being redeemed, and we're going to be completely redeemed one day. We have been resurrected in new life, and we're in the process of learning more and more, growing more and more into the new life. Uh, but at, at the end, there'll be the resurrection of the body, and, and flesh and, and spirit will come together, and all will be made new in Jesus Christ. So part of what these heretics are evidently doing, they're just saying, yeah, we're, we're resurrection people, but everything that has to do forever and all times with resurrection has already happened. So they're probably saying the right things. You know, coming to Christ is a resurrection type thing. Living new life is a resurrection type thing. Passing from darkness to life, death to life is a resurrection type thing. <clears throat> but obviously they're rejecting um, any sort of physical bodily resurrection in the future. Uh, the Greek world, by the way, for Paul, uh, loved the spiritual resurrection language. They thought the Jewish and the Christian world was vulgar and barbaric and little stupid because of our emphasis also on bodily resurrection. So these heretics are the people 
<clears throat> and here's where you can apply it to our culture today. These heretics are the people who are taking the Christian faith and over-spiritualizing it, super-spiritualizing it. I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. Sometimes I start hearing that a little bit like this. I'm spiritual, but I don't like material things like you people. I want you messing with my spirituality. Don't want the church, the body of Christ, messing with my spirituality. Um, you know, um, for instance, you know, a, a way to get, and this is not wrong. Heresy takes hold because there's truth in it. It just is truth heading in the wrong direction. Is truth that can get you in the wrong place. Um, you're not a body having a spiritual experience. You're a spirit having a bodily experience. I'm not going to footnote that one, but if you know who that comes from. Is that wrong? No. Is it incomplete? Certainly. Are we a spirit having a bodily experience or a body having a spiritual experience? The Christian answer is yes. We are both. We're not anti-body. We're not anti-matter. We're not so spro we're not so pro-spiritual that the body, the flesh, creation. We're the ones that says go to the doctors. Your body matters. Creation matters. Ecology matters. When God finishes God's work, all creation will be redeemed in Christ. So some of the people who have done the Christian movement the greatest damage are those who have sound sounded so spiritual. So these people are saying, we believe in the resurrection. The resurrection has only happened. You make your hell here on earth. Well, you do. That doesn't mean there may not be another one. You make your heaven here on earth. Well, you do to a certain extent. But that doesn't mean there may not be another one. We in the Christian faith are what theologians call conjunctive theologians. We are always both and. Almost always both and. Is he human or is he divine? Yes. We are conjunctive theologians. So heresies usually are not conjunctive. <clears throat> We're all spiritual, not bodily. Now the other, what we also see going on in the world today, they don't claim to be religious, but we see a lot of people that just focus on the body. And they don't know anything about the spiritual reality. We don't usually, those aren't usually called heretics because they don't usually pass themselves off as Christians. You know, those are the hedonists, the materialists. Um, some of them are in pews on Sunday morning, by the way. But most of them don't paint that as the, as the Christian truth. But we do have people, Paul had people, who painted Christian truth as just spiritual stuff. So what you do with your body matters. Yeah, you can posit that on out. What you do with your body matters. What you do with your body with another human being matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's why Paul says when you visit a prostitute, that's a spiritual thing going on. Because what you do with your body matters. Even if it's with another consenting adult, you can draw your conclusions. But anyway... The, the heretics he's dealing with here are spiritual. They're teaching the resurrection has already happened. Um, 
<clears throat> so finish up this section. Um, Paul finishes talking about these people. They are upsetting the faith of some. I'm glad it's just some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, this guarantee. And here he quotes because, again, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. Here is two quotations from the book of Numbers. And I want you to look at what he does here. He, he brings two quotations. The Lord knows those who are his. Don't look at the next quotation yet. Just look at that one. The Lord knows who are his. God's got this. God's saving people. God is sovereign. So does that make you think you don't have something to do? It's all God, not you. Again, we're conjunctive theologians. Paul is too. So look at the next verse to make sure you don't think it's all God. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from evil, depart from iniquity. God does God's part, God. You have to do your part, though. God's not going to yank you out of evil. I wish you would sometimes. God's not going to take away that second piece of chocolate cake from you tonight. I wish you would. You know, God is doing God's work, and it's amazing, it's great, it's elaborate, but that doesn't mean we're off the hook. We, we, we're conjunctive theologians. We have to sort of cooperate with God. And we, don't, we didn't make that up. Paul, Paul preached that. So, uh, 